Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health features industry guests and panelists who explore topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Mindy McGrath, Vynamic's healthcare industry advisor. Design thinking may be one of the hottest buzzwords echoing throughout the halls of the business and technology worlds today, but the concept is not new. Since the late 1950s, designers of products of all types have employed and adhered to principles of design thinking like empathy, prototyping, co-creation, and user centricity to create technical and physical products we all use today. Recently, as the gap between patient and healthcare companies has narrowed, the industry has shown heightened interest in applying design thinking to the products and services they create and offer. To dive deeper into this topic, I'm joined by a familiar voice to regular listeners of Trending Health, and that is our resident expert on this topic, Mike Catone, a director at Binamic. Mike has spent a significant amount of time assisting healthcare organizations with the adoption of design thinking and innovation sprints to advance service and product offerings. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for joining us today as a guest rather than a panelist. Hey, Mindy. Same chair, different role. Exactly. So let's jump into this topic. Um, When we talk about design thinking, I think it calls to mind many different associations um, to different people, depending on what lens you're looking through. What do you think are some of the most important aspects of the design thinking process? I think really starting with the core principle of empathy is, is a super important core aspect of what makes design thinking different and special compared to other product development techniques. And I say that because to me, design thinking is really all about thinking of the product or service that you're creating in the context of how it's going to be used by people interacting with it. And you know, I think in the intro, you talked about physical and technical products. I think when we say product during this conversation, I want our listeners to think about anything. It could be a cup that they're drinking out of. It could be a website that they're logging into. It could be a medication box that they're taking an over-the-counter medication out of. All of these objects, whether they're physical and tangible or they're digital and it's something they interact with over their phone, all of them have to be designed. And I think what design thinking puts at the forefront is empathy, is thinking about what the user wants to get out of the experience. And, uh, you know, a lot of people like to talk about the job to be done with certain products and services. And design thinking really employs that um, at its core. I would never have thought about empathy as being like the first thing that you mentioned. And I I, I would imagine it's really hard sometimes for um, participants that are in a design thinking, maybe workshop or a function to really layer on that empathy first and, and layer it onto something as, as simple as uh, packaging. Yeah. It, I mean, the way that the way that my, my team works right now and employees design thinking, one of the first things we do uh, whenever we kick off a, a project sprint is we run through an exercise and we have participants design a product. Sometimes it's a passport holder. Sometimes it's a wallet. Sometimes it is a carry-on suitcase. And the way that we kind of teach them how to use empathy is we have them design that product without any guidance. Design your dream carry-on piece of luggage. 
Um, and then we partner them up and then we have them interview their counterparts and ask them, what are your travel habits? How often do you travel? What are the things that you really wish you had with you at an airport, on the train, on the subway? And then they use that information to understand what some of the unmet human needs are in those situations. And then they think about that and they redesign that carry-on piece of luggage or that wallet. And what that teaches them to do is to really think about the user's context when they'll be using this product. So it's less about what does this product look like behind behind a store front window and more about how is it being used out in the world in the actual applicable scenarios. And what we often find is there are some commonalities between the first initial design and the design that carries through to the end, but there are components and features of the eventual product that the designer never would have thought about if they didn't interview their partner. And I think that that's a really, what that does is it teaches people to step outside of, number one, their preconceived notions about what they think a product um, might need to solve for or what features a product might need to have. But it also um, allows them to look at it from not their, not only their experience. So, you know, when you're talking about your perfect travel piece of luggage or your perfect wallet, that might be a different use case than someone else. And by broadening your horizons and looking to what other people need, you kind of open up the door to all new solutions that you never would have thought of um, yourself. And that's kind of the way that we teach how to fuse empathy with within the design process. And I could see how empathy right has a lot of applicability in healthcare when you think about bedside manner and just that patient to physician interaction. So it's interesting that we're talking about, we've been talking about products and more physical aspects, but Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about healthcare a little bit Mm -hmm. because this has become a really hot topic in the healthcare market. And I wonder how do you think healthcare companies can best use design thinking techniques in their current business and like planning for what they want to do in the future? Well, I think, you know, the core principle of empathy, if you abstract that out a little bit, um, it really gets back to the idea that none of the none of the products or services or medications, none of those are going to exist in a vacuum without a user, either taking the medication, using the product, calling the service. None of those exist in a vacuum. So I think that as a core principle, thinking about how customers, whether they're physicians or patients or nurses, or caregivers, how are they going to be using the product that you're coming up with and you're designing, and really thinking about that throughout the design process. And even consulting with potential users of the product. A lot of pharmaceutical companies already have existing relationships with physicians through speaker programs or through patient advocacy groups, and thinking about actually getting their opinion on potential solutions or services is a really interesting way to kind of guide design at a very early stage. And it's something that we've employed uh, on my on my current project and with my current client. Um, and it really shows interesting results because, you know, one of the things that my experience in design thinking has shown me is that something can look really good on paper or at a marketing award show, 
um, but not resonate with its core audience. And that, to me, really calls into question the utility of that product. Because if something is pretty and shiny and no one uses it because it's difficult to use, it's not intuitive, it doesn't fit into the workflow of the patient, the caregiver, the physician, then is it really serving its purpose? Mm -hmm. Or is it just a shiny object that that you can parade around and say, look what me and my team worked so hard to develop over the last year. And it's definitely difficult. Um, and it's something that you know we kind of wrangle with uh, a lot when we're working with smaller teams at my client is um, we don't always come up with the most flashy solutions. And I think that's what differentiates um, design thinking from a lot of other kind of innovation techniques is a lot of them may be focused on blue skying and thinking of the craziest idea or thinking of the most technologically forward idea. Um, but we are so focused on what will people actually use and what will they get utility out of? Like what is the what is the um, the value proposition for the user and the product? Like that is at the core of our focus and we care much less about how we get there than what the ultimate outcome is. Okay. Interesting. So can I ask you, well, you were talking a lot about pharmaceutical mm -hmm. uh, life sciences products. Mm -hmm. um, do you think design thinking actually has application for providers and for health plans? Absolutely. It, absolutely. And I think um, providers and health plans actually have a really unique um, and differentiated ability to interact directly with their users. Um, you know, life sciences companies are often many steps down the value chain or up the value chain, depending on on how you um, phrase it, from the patients. They have a very difficult time directly interacting with patients. Um, and providers are, that th their job is to interact with patients. Um, and I think that design thinking, you know, even within the corridors of a hospital, could be a really fascinating way to improve patient experience. Um, and a lot of the way that you can do that might not be you know, with a huge monetary investment. Um, and, you know, I, I think that the big hurdle to overcome there is um, figuring out a good way to get patient feedback on their experience at the hospital and be willing to hear a negative feedback um, because that's kind of, that's going to be very instructive um, and to understand how, patients are, you know, experiencing their hospital stays, but organizations may not see exactly what they want to see when they go out and they talk to patients and they try to, they, they maybe they, they shadow them for their day or they follow them um, throughout their, their hospital stay. Um, but, you know, that kind of empathy is built in with, with patient, uh, with providers. Um, and, that's just a really unique position. I know life sciences companies would really, really love to be as close to patients um, right. as providers are. Uh, and and I also think that the one thing that kind of sets – another thing that sets design thinking um, apart from other innovation techniques is you can often get a lot of mileage out of small tweaks to programs or products uh, that people interact with uh, on a regular basis. And you don't necessarily need a huge investment to reap you know, a large benefit in right. return. So it's not recreating the wheel. No, we, we very, one of the, um, 
one of the principles um, that we love to adhere to during our projects um, is repurposing or borrowing from other experiences. And it really, you know, a great example of this is kind of the cliche startup like Uber for dog walking, mm-hmm. uh, Airbnb for private gyms. You know, people kind of use known services or entities and kind of apply them to different situations or different categories um we can like we can do that as well like imagine you know um the pharmacy but amazon delivers it what does that look like imagine um you know blood testing but it's done you know you drop it in a mailbox instead of going out to a lab so we we love to use those kind of borrowing and repurposing and just kind of flipping the idea on its head um and that's really helpful because it allows us to think about services and products that people interact with today and what's beneficial about them and how we can take those beneficial parts and infuse it into the specific business goal or challenge that we're trying to solve for. Yeah, and that's something you talk about quite often is like um, borrowing ideas that are already in somebody's everyday life. Mm-hmm. So their familiarity yes. with it is is common and they're comfortable with it right and and what that also does is it allows for kind of natural insertion points Mm -hmm. for the product to kind of fall into um you know i think a lot of people commonly think about um uh, like oh i just built an app for that because everyone has a phone um and everyone uses apps but if you dig a little bit deeper into that um i don't have the exact statistics in front of me but the amount of time that people spend on like their most used five apps is something crazy, like 98% of their time on their phone. So, you know, you building another app for people to go into might not actually be the best solution. And maybe it's building a solution, a place they already are on their phone. Um, and maybe that's, you know, delivering uh, lifestyle messaging on Instagram because they're already on Instagram and it's not about building an entire new ecosystem and just thinking about how to meet users where they are um, and kind of nudge them in, in that direction. I know this is getting like a little digitally focused, but that's just an example of understanding how the user's behaviors already work today. And instead of trying to change those behaviors, because we know that behavior change is one of the hardest things that companies or or industries can actually impart on consumers try to actually meet them where they are yeah and it sounds to me i mean just from from this conversation some of the examples that you just laid out i mean design thinking just has such broad applicability to many different types of situations um to it and so that's why whether it's digital or whether we're talking about the patient experience mm-hmm. you can you can take the principles of design thinking and really start to layer them into Whatever the situation yeah. is. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit? So I know you work um, on design sprints, mm-hmm. which are short projects that usually last a few weeks, um, and many are in the healthcare space. Can you talk to me a little bit about the process and kind of what have you learned or taken from this process as you've been doing this now for a while? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, our process... Um, it combines a, a few different methodologies, and without getting super specific, what we really focus on upfront is defining our problem correctly. Uh, we find that, uh, and this is something I've seen, you know, even far back before, you know, my pre my my current work, um, organizations tend to not spend 
enough time defining the specific challenge or problem that a project sets out to solve for. Um, we kind of over, we, we spend, I would say, proportionally a lot of time scoping the right set of problems. Um, so just like thinking about like as an, an example, instead of designing, you know, entire an entire marketing campaign from the ground up using like in a project sprint, we might think about how are we going to design our call to action that gets patients who aren't activated out to a diagnostic test. So instead of thinking about like the entire branding campaign, colors, slogans, um, models, what the commercials are going to look like, thinking about okay, like really focusing on like what that call to action is, um, that is a way that we can kind of focus um, not only our attention, but also the people that we would involve in our interviews and talking to them and figuring out like what are their needs? Why aren't they going to diagnostic testing today? What have their physicians already tried to get them to go out and do diagnostic testing? What are the hurdles to doing that? And you see, you know, we can slot that kind of call to action into a broader marketing campaign or branding campaign. But um, in order to solve for an entire campaign like that, you might need to talk to 15 different types of people. And by kind of scoping out what that problem is and, and getting specific, it allows us to narrow our audience and think about that audience in kind of a, in, in a narrow way. Um, and if we're only spending a few weeks on this specific part of the project, it's much better to, to, to really figure out all of the information we can about that part um, and then infuse that as opposed to trying to boil the ocean and doing too much. So that's re- usually how we started is like scoping it uh, appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we, we love to talk to users who are involved uh, in, and affected by like, any potential solutions. Um, we, we take that information and we kind of synthesize them into thematic understanding of like what are their human needs so what are the needs that they have what are the needs that these users have that we heard from our conversations um and oftentimes we combine that with you know live interviews we combine that with research that's already been done or market research that's already available um but we love to talk to people one-on-one um because you can get a lot more out of kind of one-on-one interviews than you would be able to with um a scantron that they fill out for example. Um, And then we use that information to drive our design. So that's kind of the key component is we don't, you know, in my example of, you know, designing a call to action for a marketing campaign, we don't say, okay, what would the perfect call to action look like? That's not how we would start our design session. We would say, this is what we heard from patients. This is why they're not taking the action that we want them to take. These are the hurdles that they have voiced. So how can we design the call to action to meet all of those needs, to mitigate all of the hurdles that we heard from them? So it's much more it's much more a solution focused design uh, like that's that's really focused on solving the problems of the users and not solving the problem of we don't have a call to action. Does yeah. that does that make sense? It does make sense. And you know, I was thinking as you were talking about this, I'm sure the natural inclination 
is to want to spend, if you're talking about these sprints being really concise periods of time, is to want to get into solving, right, and solutioning right away. Um, but it does make sense to design and spend the time really concisely figuring out what the problem statement is and the scope of that problem statement. With these sprints that you do, is there always um, a solution or a design at the end of them? Or have you seen some sprints where you spend the majority of time just trying to get the information up front so that the, the problem statement is really tightened and then maybe you do another sprint to design? Is that something that you see commonly or do you really kind of say to yourselves, hey, we have, um, I don't know, eight weeks, 10 weeks, mm -hmm. and we have to go end to end, but mm -hmm. we're going to spend 50% of the time making sure we get a clear, clarifying, scoping on the problem statement, mm -hmm. and then the rest of the time will be about actually design and solutioning. Well, so I would say that there aren't, there aren't oftentimes where we don't come up with a solution, but there have been times where we have not come up with a solution that has resonated with the users. Got it. Because one of our, one of our final steps is to go back to the users and ask them, this is what we heard. This is what we came up with. Would you use this? How would you use it? Do you like it? What would you change about it? What would you take out of it? What would you add to it? And there have been a few specific projects where we have come up with a solution and you know none of them have tested well. And in that scenario, you know, I think one of the one of the most challenging aspects of design thinking to infuse in kind of an output focused organization, which most organizations are output focused. What what are the end results of this project that your team has been working on for six months? Right. And it's either something or it's nothing. And usually anything is better than nothing. Even if that anything that the that the team comes up with is going to launch out into the world and no one's going to use it it's still better than not producing anything over over that six-month period. So we kind of mitigate that um, in two ways. And one way is by keeping the projects short. So if we, don't, if we come up with a solution that doesn't test well, we've only spent three or four weeks on it. So it's not like we've spent you know, a huge amount of time and we put this thing out in the world that's cost millions of dollars and then it doesn't really work. Um, but the other way we, we mitigate it is by producing and understanding the the key learnings that kind of drove our design and decision making processes because even if we come out with a solution that doesn't necessarily resonate with the users we are still producing this is the information we heard from the users these are the themes and needs that are really important to them and this is what any successful solution would solve for now we didn't solve for it necessarily. You know, this this didn't hit the mark in the way that we thought it would. But we know that in the future, if we want to look at this from a different angle, we have to contend with these needs. Okay, that was interesting and makes a lot of sense. Um, so as we wrap up, I have one question for you. What's one takeaway that you have from your exposure to design thinking that you think can be applied universally? I think it really goes back to, and you know, I talked about empathy being really important, sort of the core at design thinking in the beginning of this discussion. Um, and I think that empathy is kind of a general nebulous term for some people who haven't really infused it. And I really think 
if you're going to take one thing away from this conversation, what I'd love all of our listeners to think about as they're working on their next project um, is who is the person who's going to be using this thing you're creating? And are you creating it for them or for you? And you really need to think about you don't want to create something that's just for you because you're not the person who's going to be using this in their daily life. And this can extend to kind of like everything, like the, the microphone stands we're using right now. If the designers put them in front of people while they were while they were designing it and while they were tweaking the design, they would understand, okay, how much should this arm articulate? What kind of de- what kind of degree of motion do we need? Like do they need to be able to use it with one hand as they're recording to adjust it? And thinking, I know that's a really kind of specific example, but kind of zooming out and understanding that nothing you're creating is just go is it's not art. It's not there to be observed. It's there to be used. And having having people think about that um, is really important because that can affect every decision that you make. Um, and you know you can apply that universally to everything that you're designing. Anything down to um, you know a, a patient information form that you fill out at the physician's office. Like I've seen some of those where I'm pretty sure they never put it in front of a patient before they printed out a thousand copies of it and they just passed it out. And Can we tackle explanation of benefits statements? Because those to me seem like they are ripe for design thinking. Yeah, I mean, and it's and it's just crazy because if you think about it, you know, these organizations that, that, that are creating these forms are often sort of so like insular and singularly focused on like the output mm-hmm. of the project that they're working on that they never zoom out and like take them like take it out and put it out into the world and test it. And I think that um, that's a huge hurdle for organizations um, is to like try something out before you go wide with it. Yeah. And I think um, you know what organizations would be you know smart to do. Their organizations are made up of people, and within you might be able to find people that encounter that you know have a condition that you're treating and, or you know are using like might use a service that you're creating so even without like kind of the rigmarole of going out and recruiting people for market research or engagement um, or paying out honoraria you might be able to source from inside your organization to really kind of understand like who would be using this and do they fit the profile and like put it through its steps before you go launch it and don't be afraid to do that um because you may not find great news. You might find bad news. But wouldn't it be better to find that bad news before you launch it? Absolutely. And, and when you can actually still tweak it or before you send it to print or air it on TV? Yeah, absolutely. So such a fascinating topic. I feel like there's so much opportunity in the healthcare market to um, really adopt design thinking principles. Um, want to thank you for taking the time of to talk to us today on Trending Health. That was an awesome conversation with our colleague, Mike Catone. And to recap what we heard from Mike and discuss the topic further, I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Hummel, our provider sector advisor. Hello, everybody. And our dynamic colleagues, Keith Sutter and Connor Lippincott. Hey, how's everybody doing? Hey, guys. Thanks for joining us. Um, So, guys, I I love this topic. I think that 
design thinking feels very, very relevant to what's going on in the healthcare world and opportunities to really think about um, how to think, act, and do differently. Uh, one of the things I found interesting was during my discussion with Mike, right, he talked about the importance of both empathy and repurposing to the design thinking process. Where do you see opportunities um, for healthcare organizations to learn from their users or even outside of the industry? Sure. So one idea there, Mindy, that I had is making sure that we're always thinking not only about the users and the early adopters, which I think typically we will go to because they'll confirm some of our ideas or some of our thoughts. It's also equally important to really think about the detractors or the non the people who are not adopting the technology, and why not? Understanding the barriers. So I think it's always a balance of those extreme users, making sure that you first get and get some good feedback from those early adopters, but also making sure that you're understanding and you're empathizing with your detractors or with the folks that are not adopting these ideas and understanding why, because you can learn equally from both. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I think it's really important um, to check yourself when you're going through these exercises and doing research to make sure that you're not just working with people who are telling you the same thing who you've already worked with a million times before. It's really important to get that full spectrum of opinions and users and age and, and different diverse experiences and backgrounds to uh, understand that who actually is gonna be an, end up using your product. I think both comments, Connor and Keith, are, are so spot on. I think health systems in the US, they do a really good job of displaying empathy empathy in kind of the traditional sense. And I think there would, it's a great opportunity for us to convert that into the empathetic way of design thinking that Mike talked about during the interview with Mindy. So I think that's a, a really good point. And the other piece of this is because we're so empathetic in the healthcare system and specifically in health systems, it is sometimes hard to sit across the room with someone and hear a challenge and developing what Amy Edmondson calls psychological safety in these rooms or when these ideas are going forward is a really key part of this and making sure that, you know, sometimes conflict breeds productivity and the way design thinking works and listening to Mike and you two experts, conflict is actually a productive way of solving problems. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I think you're right. I mean, this, the healthcare system or provider setting is really naturally just bred to be empathetic. So when you start to go through a process like this and you're really listening to end users, even though there is you know, patient feedback and surveys that are done, really digging deep into, you know, both the, the to Keith's point, the uh, end users that are probably going to be big fans and give you some good feedback. You also want to equally balance what are you not doing well or what's not going to be useful to the end user, right? Because it's really, it's not necessarily about the beauty of the product or the service. It's really about what the utilization is mm -hmm. for, for that end user. Um, so let me ask you this, because we all know, right, in the healthcare system, that healthcare organizations tend to be extensively focused on things like outcomes or output. So very oriented towards that type of, of model. How do you leverage a model based on rapid prototyping and failing fast, which is part of design thinking, when you're in this kind of environment? Sure. Yeah. I'll offer some initial thoughts here. And I think it's about defining success. So in terms of defining success as learning. So as we talked about, you know, not only hearing from your, your advocates and your detractors, but design thinking is about 
not just about the success of the project or the initiative. It's about how can we generate learning as rapidly as possible. And you know, as, as I know, you know, Mike mentioned, sometimes that's you know, getting to failure quickly and and not wasting the resources or the time or the opportunities that could have been diverted to other projects. So I think that defining success as learning should come naturally to healthcare organizations, right? We're science-based organizations looking at experimentation, and yet I find for many of the services or the products that we design, sometimes we lose sight of that. And I think you can even, I think one thing that organizations are used to doing is looking for those actual numbers, that ROI. And one thing that when I've worked with Mike in the past is that you can actually put a number on some of these learnings. Um, you didn't spend X hundred thousand dollars on some project that you would have done otherwise because you actually talked to your users and understood what they wanted from your product. All really valid points. I, I actually add one more thing too. I think we talked about this off camera kind of earlier about <laughs> this idea of lean and agile methodologies that have really taken shape in healthcare and health system lens with our provider clients. And that seems to come pretty naturally as time progresses, but this idea of failing quickly and failing forward, sometimes it's tough to do. And you know, we're certainly not advocating that design thinking should harm a patient or harm a stakeholder. And that's not what we're saying. We're saying that you're failing quickly on operational projects that you would have followed through with otherwise. And I think that's a key distinction that sometimes people don't think about in the health system that they would, would do a good job considering in the future. Yeah, I think one of the things that Mike brought up is making sure you really have a clear sense of the problem you're trying to solve, right? Defining your problem. The part about uh, experimentation is understanding what are you going to learn about that problem, right? And being very clear from the upfront that this is the problem we want to solve. And in this experiment, we're going to learn a bit more about this part of that problem, right? So that we can do the next experiment, so that we can do the next experiment. I think the other trap many organizations get caught in is trying to design an experiment that tests the entirety of the idea in one fell swoop. You have to break it down into very manageable chunks so that you can really test sort of individual um, aspects of an idea and what are those key key variables that are gonna lead to success. And sometimes those challenges aren't always patience, right? I think a lot of times when we talk about empathy in the health systems, it's easiest to just immediately go to the, the, the patients. But one thing that really great organizations do who have good design thinking um, standards, uh, they'll start to use different groups as those users. So you're interviewing in life sciences, for example, your field force or your HCPs who are going to end up prescribing your, your drugs and being able to understand what their needs are and different ways that you can get information or training to, to those types of people. In an environment as complex as healthcare, you need to understand the range of stakeholders and where all the different pain points are to really be able to have that empathy for all of the pain that's in the system. Mm -hmm. We talk about a lot of things that are hot topics, right, in healthcare design thinking is no exception. I'm wondering if we take a step back and we think about design thinking from the lens of like five to 10 years out, where do we see the greatest opportunities for design thinking to actually improve the healthcare ecosystem? So I think from a patient perspective, a couple of the, uh, the obvious ones that come to mind are the ambulance experience and the emergency room experience. Both are some of the kind of biggest pain points I've ever experienced in the, uh, just as a user myself, um, in the, uh, the healthcare process. I think that the, um, the whole communication process around 
your benefits Mm -hmm. and actually really understanding from a patient perspective uh, what has been paid and what you owe. So the explanation of benefits. Um, We already find the the healthcare system to be very complex. And I think that seems like an an area that is really, really ripe um, for design thinking because I personally will tell you it is a painful experience trying to reconcile um, all these different, you know, invoices, statements, bills, and how it comes back in your EOB. I think that's a great point. And I think e- what you've seen in terms of the even the legislation or the movement or the consumer outrage around surprise billing. Mm-hmm. So not only getting a decent accounting after the fact, after you've already incurred the cost, but how do you empower patients now that with a high deductible plan, they're accountable for this. And yet when they call to find out how much a procedure or you know a, a test may cost, oftentimes they can't get a straight answer, right? So I think that those those pieces are really important. I took it a little, I took the question maybe a little diff- bit differently. I would have said the greatest opportunity is how can key leaders in healthcare really start to adopt this mindset of experimentation that they often bring to the table every day when they're looking for novel you know, products, novel service delivery models, how can they bring it to the rest of their organization, right? How can they take that same mindset of a process of discovery and experimentation and really foster it across the entire organization? Th- places like supply chain, places like marketing, and really uh, bring that mindset that I think exists in the R&D function in many companies and bring it to the to the rest of the organization. I think that's such a great point, Keith. You know, Mike spoke a little bit earlier around some of his projects that he's working on during the interview. And one of the things he has spoken to me offline about is simply changing the way a meeting is held. And, you know, I've sat, luckily I've sat in some of the senior leader meetings at health systems and IDNs across the, across our client base. And I think about the idea of changing just the tenor of those meetings and dedicating time around design thinking and ideas. You have all of those great minds sitting in a room and dedicating and allocating the time to think that way would be a really great shift for the healthcare instead of s- keeping it operational and focusing on you know the quadruple or triple aim that they're always talking about strategically. There's an opportunity for a paradigm shift there. I often also took the question a little differently as well. I think that design thinking could really behoove our senior and senior population in the United States as well. There are really, um, I would say simple but difficult jobs to be done there for seniors when they are sent to subacute rehabs or trying to get home from a long illness that I think we can address. There, there are new companies coming out with, I was talking to Mindy earlier about Internet of Things and, and how we address things like incontinence and these simple things um, that aren't really necessarily the diagnosis itself, but all the things that rally around it. And I think some design thinking could really help the way we treat our seniors in getting home in an area where they're feeling more comfortable and could talk all day about that. Yeah, I'm going to go big or go home on this one. Go for it. Um, And just say that while I was just talking about explanation of benefits, if I think, you know, where would be the greatest opportunity for design thinking in the next five to 10 years, it would be really having perhaps the U.S. government looking at this from a structural standpoint. Because really everything we're talking about is very symptomatic of a healthcare system that has been structured with the end user not in mind. Right. So I know that is very aspirational in nature, but I think it is something that, you know, we can pick and chip away at things in the healthcare system. But until you really start to think about how backwards 
some of the things are in our system, whether it's the claims processing um, infrastructure or the adjudication process. I mean, all of these things are, you know, just make it very difficult to get to truly coming up with, with a large magnitude change that maybe design thinking could bring. And I think, Mindy, that's a great point. And whether the U.S. government is able to help us enact that change or I think many of the technology companies that are starting to get into healthcare are going to force the issue. PillPack is a great example of, you know, bringing a unique benefit, you know, not a, not novel medicines, but it's all about solving pain points in terms of how do you, how do I manage my medications and taking them in adherence, one of the number one issues and bought by Amazon for almost a billion dollars. Yeah. Good point. Good point. And I think the, like, to your point, Mindy, the, the big structural change is, is so important, and it's something that we've he heard in these user interviews with patients. Um, sometimes you'll come up with some nifty solution, some perfect packaging, something like that, and then patients are just like, but it costs too much. Um, and so it really does come down. The user is still worried about cost and how much time it takes them to get their, their medications. What do you foresee as the biggest challenge that organizations might need to overcome when it comes to actually adopting design thinking? Sure. So one example that I've pretty consistently seen is everybody loves a workshop. Everybody loves brainstorming. Everybody loves coming up with ideas. And you've got the, the great image, right, of everyone with the post-it notes and everybody walks away supercharged. I think one of the biggest barriers is planning for and coordinating and creating the resources to take those ideas rapidly through iteration and move them forward and create that momentum. Too many organizations plan for the workshop, the ideation, and don't plan for the resources to take those ideas forward. And I think what that does is it causes uh, fatigue by employees. You can get me to come to a brainstorming session once or twice, and if I don't see anything come of it, the third time I'm going to say, I've got other things to do. Yep, I've seen it a million times at the end of a workshop. Somebody signs up and is like, yeah, I can definitely donate 20% of my time or something to this to, to move this forward. And then they get back to their normal job the next week. And it's like, oh, now I have 120% of, <laughs> of a job. Right. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Planning for the follow through. And um, I think it goes back to something we talked about earlier is really having it ingrained in the meetings and the structure that is already happening um, and if it has that kind of top-down buy-in, um, you'll see a little bit more of the organization, organizational ability to uh, have that follow-through. I, I completely agree. I think the permutation of all of that also is maybe not a large-scale workshop, it, but more to the lines of <clears throat> what are you doing between meetings? Uh, you know, I, I have this visceral reaction to meetings themselves, and you look mm -hmm. at the calendars of senior leaders and they're chock full of a, a schedule full of meetings. But reality is the work doesn't happen in a meeting. The work happens at the front line or at the caregiver level. The work happens between meetings. And if all we're doing is meeting, that work and that design thinking can't happen. So changing the paradigm, ensuring that during that meeting you're talking about what you did or developing, and there's so many tools that exist now of thinking while betwixt meetings and making sure that that thinking doesn't stop because you're going to be doing and going to see where the work is being done, a very lean concept. But what do you do with that information when it happens or when you're testing it? You need to find an area or kind of a repository that real live time to be able to keep and capture that. And that's, that's the essence of design thinking is making sure it's always happening all the time and not just during the meetings or during the workshops. 
so I'm sitting here and I'm listening to this podcast. I'm a healthcare leader and I'm thinking about design, thinking and saying, hmm, this sounds really interesting. Where do I start? Yeah, I think one of the first places to start is defining your problem, right? So understanding, I think to, to Connor's point earlier, in terms of the resources, it shouldn't be at the end of a workshop or an ideation session, everybody you know, is like, well, who's going to take this on? It should be clear. Whoever's responsible for solving the problem that you've identified is the one who's going to take these ideas forward, right? So I think what you have to really understand is what's a big or a small or even a medium-sized problem that is, feels intractable? And let's think about framing it in a different way. Because if you know what the answer is, you don't need design thinking. You just need to go execute. It's the problems that you don't know what the answer is, that you need to do that exploration, create that empathy. So it's, for, it's get started, you know, engage with some experts, some folks that have had some experience, and find an opportunity to, to, to get started. Yeah, I think starting with a problem is, is perfect. You don't want to just kind of start setting up some separate organization and tell them your job is to go do design thinking and then they end up I think we talked about this as just kind of like a siloed group that's doing innovation uh, I use air quotes there <laughs> um, for those of you who didn't see there were air quotes yeah. <laughs> um, yeah doing innovation without um, actually having any sort of tie-in to the rest of the the organization and, and, you know, I hate to say well I think something else should go before that but I think parallel to what both of our experts have mentioned is an, an evaluation assessment or change in the way that you look at the values of your organization. Because, you know, you can create uh, the problem to be solved, but if you don't have the environment to be able to solve it, it just will linger forever. So I mentioned psychological safety or having the idea of a value and behavior system where people and folks and caregivers and colleagues are able to bring up problems without recourse or without the ability of feeling guilty about it, or if they're, especially in their own yard, if you, if you will, you need to have the environment to bring up problems and feel safe enough to share them. Because if you don't have that environment, you're not gonna get the full story. Such a great point. And this is a topic, I feel like we could talk about this for hours. We probably will, but it is time to wrap up our panel discussion and, uh, Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in this episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Binamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit TrendingHealth.com. Tune in to the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.